millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to talk about a book which if you haven't read it um, so far you really need to go and get it. Now you know in this podcast I do reviews from time to time and generally I'm pretty complimentary about the things I read. My general policy is because uh, I haven't got time in my life to read things I dislike, uh, that I'll always focus on books that I enjoy or I think are going to be interesting. Well, Empire of Cotton, uh, A New History of Global Capitalism by Sven Beckett, is not just one of the best history books I've read in the last couple of years. I think it's one of the most important, and I would place it as an analysis of the development of the modern world up there with uh, Eric Hobsbawm's Ages uh, Quartet. Um, it's an immensely significant read because it discusses the development of the global cotton industry. The global cotton industry really is the first wave of the Industrial Revolution, and so it discusses the foundation stone of global capitalism itself and the relationship between the development of global capitalism and the development of modern slavery. Sven Beckett first uh, describes the uh, early modern phase of imperialism and the early modern phase of uh, the acquisition by European powers of the cotton industry as war capitalism. What he argues is that the ancient cotton industry, which had been uh, dotted around the world from uh, South and Central America to China to India, Anatolia and um, Africa, uh, which had existed within complicated feudal relations and had been part of um, a process of uh, social construction within various um, feudal and pre-feudal um, societies uh, around the world was uh, acquired by European powers. New kinds of states developed in the 17th and 18th century in Europe, uh, states where the growing, um, the early modern uh, forces of capitalism, of new incorporated entities and corporations um, and uh, companies 
design set up to explore trade routes to the east and to finance those expeditions and to capture new markets were assisted by governments which were starting to realise that coffers could be filled with the profits from trade. If you think of Europe as going in the 16th and 17th centuries through a transition from um, a tax base based around land ownership to a tax base based uh, around trade and commerce. You need to look at the dramatic expansion of London and places such as uh, Antwerp and Rotterdam, the Hanseatic ports uh, and other sites of trade to show that this was what attracted populations like magnets for the principal reason that trade was a new way of sustaining and um, bringing about prosperity and wealth uh, for those involved in it and for the people who serviced uh, traders, um, people who were in industries which made uh, trade possible and the lives of uh, people in the new mercantile capitalism more comfortable. Far-sighted rulers uh, in England, for example, from Henry VII onwards, spotted that this was the, the future and this was the, the way in which um, income could be gained. Crowns at the end of the Middle Ages were increasingly financially weakened and becoming aware that sound finances and sound governance and not being overthrown or descending into civil wars such as the Wars of the Roses were uh, an important uh, had an important relationship and that money was the way in which um, a crown could go from weakness to strength very quickly so securing lines of income was important and that meant when new ventures um, such as uh, companies set up for exploration and trade were established they got royal charters and uh, charters of incorporation and they were given uh, monopolies on certain industries and the right to go and explore. You only need to look at the letters from Henry VII to John Cabot, who was uh, told it was perfectly fine to, for him to sail off uh, into the West and find this newfound land, Newfoundland, uh, and to, to name it in the, uh, to, to claim it in the name of, of the crown, um, to see that, that relationship emerge. These relationships, Sven Beckett um, said, would by the 17th and 18th centuries um, create um, what he called more capitalism, interventionist militarist states that were happy to wage war, not for the kinds of reasons that kings of the Middle Ages did, for territory, for crowns, for um, some misguided sense that war was the, the, the sport of kings and um, was... Uh, part of uh, a king's honour and national prestige, as we mentioned Henry VIII's way of looking at the world, but to wage war in the interests of this emergent capitalism. By that we mean waging war in order to break open markets, waging war in order to acquire raw materials, waging war to do whatever was necessary to ensure that um, the bankers of the City of London and other financial centres saw a return on their investment.
It's interesting if you look at the position that Charles I was in during the English Civil War. During the period of the Long Parliament, where Charles prorogued Parliament and uh, attempted to rule, well, she did rule for 11 years without uh, any uh, parliamentary involvement, it was a period of time when the moneylenders of uh, the City of London were less and less inclined to help him, particularly to pay for a second war against Scotland, which uh, Charles had uh, lost the first one. The reason why is that they said, we cannot trust you to pay the money back. Um, we could trust the Parliament. Parliament uh, would be far more likely to pay the money back, but we don't think you will, so no. And it showed you how powerful, by the mid-17th century, the developing financial aspect of capitalism, lending and uh, finance and banking and money, had become. They could quite literally squash a king's ambitions to rule as an autocrat. The king promptly had to reluctantly recall parliament and the rest, as they say, is history. So, finance capitalism was emerging in the 17th century, had considerable sway, and it could influence events within uh, England and other European countries, and it could ensure also that foreign policy, and particularly intervention in wars, was uh, carried out in its name. War capitalism resulted in uh, India particularly, in Britain's ability to insert itself into the network of cotton production. Cotton production was an artisan affair in India. But British involvement and the involvement of um, local agents in the cotton trade turned uh, Indian peasants into rural wage workers for the first time. So one of the fundamental aspects of uh, the world in which we now inhabit, the world of uh, modern capitalism, in the early modern capitalist phase, was introduced into rural Indian life. It had been unchanged for uh, millennia, and this presented all manner of disruptions to the uh, Indian rural economy, and with this had resultant crises and um, hardships and famine in certain places. But this was the uh, one of the, the more minor impacts, in a way, of the development of cotton. Before the cotton industry was captured, Britain already had slaves. Britain had slaves in the Caribbean that produced sugar. Cotton was introduced to the Caribbean. It was uh, a fairly minor part of the, uh, the empire of cotton eventually. But the interesting relationship that emerges is the relationship between West Indian slaves, uh, later supplanted by... Uh, slaves in the southern states of the Americas, and impoverished wage labour in the northwest of England, where, where, where I come from, in point of fact. Um, the uh, mill owner, Samuel Gregg, who really pioneered the, the first uh, cotton uh, milling factories uh, in uh, Cheshire and Lancashire, at Quarry Bank, where um, you can still visit, it's now uh, a National Trust site, used impoverished uh, wage labour, uh, women and children, for the most part, though some men, 
who had been flung off the land by uh, a number of processes in the 18th century. Firstly, uh, the process of the enclosure of common land. Secondly, the growth of rural populations as um, the amount of food available to them increased. Life expectancies gradually uh, creeped up in the 18th century and pressure on land and therefore uh, land rents uh, grew. The surplus population was channelled into uh, cotton factories, uh, cotton mills, where new machines such as the flying shuttle and the spinning jenny had automated the process of um, cotton weaving and cotton spinning and turned cotton from being uh, an also-ran industry to the most lucrative trade in the world. Ultimately, the story of cotton isn't the story of the spinning jenny, and it's not the story of shuttles or uh, water wheels or anything like that. It's really the story of people. It's the story of how um, large numbers of people can be coerced, as in the case of uh, slaves in the southern states, as we'll talk about in a moment, and also wage labour in England. The uh, rights that... Uh, wage workers had initially were virtually non-existent and it took a, a century of struggle in order to establish them uh, at all and the desperation and hunger that rural uh, English cotton workers faced um, which drove them into the factories in the first place which were uh, extremely unpleasant places to If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. B, uh, where workplace accidents were a regular occurrence and workers 
left with damage to their lungs from cotton dust after several years. What we can see is um, the birth of modern capitalism resi resided or rested upon a number of different kinds of coercion. Wage, you might define it as waged coercion and unwaged coercion. But certainly it was there, the foreman within um, factories in England ruled with a rod of iron and obviously the foreman on the plantations in Barbados and the Americas had uh, life and death, the power of life and death over the slaves that they controlled. One of the questions that Beckett posits in The Empire of Cotton is why is it that the southern states, uh, the confederacy in the first part of the 19th century suddenly become uh, the world's superpower of cotton production. There are a number of reasons for this. Firstly, the uh, in places such as Anatolia and India, it was very different, very difficult to fully break up the uh, feudal structures that um, gave some kind of resistance to uh, the penetration of European powers into the cotton industry. The, the Europeans did extremely, were extremely effective in doing this, but they didn't go all the way in controlling the, uh, the entire process. Um, cotton workers still had a degree of autonomy in their own lives. Secondly, the lands um, were removed of their indigenous people, so the Native American peoples, the Cree and the Choctaw and other tribes in the Creek um, were flung off their lands um, notoriously by Andrew Jack, President Andrew Jackson, but there were others as well from about 1812 onwards they were, uh, they were removed. So you had this uh, terra nullis, this empty space uh, that had been ethnically cleansed of the people who once lived there, perfect for creating uh, plantations in. The land itself was particularly fertile. The Mississippi River, for millennia, had dumped silt on its banks, which had uh, irrigated and fertilised uh, many thousands of hectares of land. So it was, it was perfect for planting anyway. There had already been... Um, decades and decades of uh, research and understanding by planters, by modern planters anyway, into different strains of cotton plants. And there was a very detailed and complicated um, um, body of knowledge on how cotton plants grew and how to best uh, irrigate them and uh, raise them and uh, grow them and which cotton plants were most suited to which climates. But finally, the most, significant, um, the most significant factor is the abduction of millions of slave labourers from Africa. And without the transatlantic slave trade and the uh, ability of planters to have limitless land and limitless free labour, the empire of cotton as emerged in the United States would not have been uh, anywhere the um, powerhouse it was. By 1860, it is the number one industry in America. It is the biggest and the most lucrative industry in the United States, which gives you uh, a clue as to uh, how hard the South was prepared to, how far the South was prepared to go to defend it. The industry itself was growing throughout 
the first half of the 19th century. And Sven Beckett puts an, has an interesting observation, uh, which I found very compelling indeed, that the power and the prestige of uh, southern planters, which was based on the, uh, the, the demand, the uh, unquenchable thirst that the British Empire had for more and more cotton and cheaper and cheaper cotton, this led many southern planters to object to the dictates of Washington. They thought, uh, with some uh, kind of justification, I suppose, that they were the great source of wealth in America and they had never really accepted the legitimacy of a federal government in Washington. And they thought that there was, um, if they were the real source of wealth in America, that they should speak autonomously. Um, they, in essence, should be in charge. Um, is an interesting inversion of the process that was happening in industrial Britain at the time, uh, what then happened uh, during the uh, 1830s, where disgruntled, uh, disgruntled modern industrial bourgeoisie had objected to the fact that uh, they lacked the franchise and that they, as the people who were generating the wealth of the country, really should be running the show. In America, of course, it is the North, the, the Union, uh, that wins the war. Um, the North is uh, industrialised or industrialising, and this is one of the reasons why the Union wins the war, because it's able to mass-produce everything from steamboats to horses to uh, rifles in a way that the South can't. So um, the South's reliance on cotton uh, was uh, a slightly illusory power, though it was uh, a mainstay of southern wealth. On the subject of industrialisation, the next phase that Sven Beckett goes on to talk about is the development of the cotton industry worldwide. He has some very um, interesting stats. I mean, one of the beauties of this book is, is the, the depth of the scholarship and the research. But he talks about um, how... The uh, industry um, of uh, cotton milling and cotton weaving and mass cotton production uh, transmitted in a slightly ad hoc and random way around the world. So you find um, cotton mills in Bavaria, in Belgium, you find them popping up later in uh, Egypt, and then in the, in the 1890s emerging in China. And places like Mexico, uh, the Americas, and everywhere else in between. So he posits the question, he says, well, why is it that you get this unequal distribution of cotton milling, that things pop up at different places in different times, and, there is, and the cotton revolution, the cotton industrial revolution, doesn't happen uniformly at the same time? And the answer is very revealing, and it tells us, again, an awful lot about the development of modern capitalism. The answer is that certain societies were more resistant to um, the penetration of industrial capitalism than others. In places like um, Great Britain, the uh, barriers to the development of capitalism and the kind of the creative destruction that goes with it, people being flung off the land and resources being rapidly reallocated in a way that humanity can't quite keep up with, um, those barriers had long since been uh, swept away, kind of legalistic and um, cultural and ideological uh, barriers to change um, had long since gone 
uh, as a result, really, of the, um, the the kind of the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, the changes that take place in other parts of the world are slower, less pronounced, and more problematic. Bringing uh, a modern cotton industry to India is very difficult. Um, firstly, the planters um, realise that they cannot, the southern planters from the Confederate States uh, came to India to see if they could make um, plantations and uh, work there. And they realised that uh, Indian um, peasant agricultural workers weren't going to be coerced in the way that uh, American slaves had been. And so there was a very difficult, very difficult to run plantations in in that way. But the, in order to build factories in places like India, he needed to have a wholesale uh, evacuation of peoples from the land. And whilst this eventually happens in the twentieth century, in the nineteenth, uh, it's very difficult to do. Um, the cultural and social systems within India are actually quite resistant to this process. So. There's a difference um, between some societies which very quickly or reorder themselves to accommodate the needs of capitalism and um, some societies which don't, which are resistant and uh, re refuse to play ball. And this, again, tells us that um, throughout the, the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, where capitalism has emerged, capitalism's uh, immense kind of creative, destructive power has been one which has uh, enabled it to rewrite the rules of societies in the interests of um, profit accumulation, uh, that um, whatever else comes or goes is um, irrelevant in the face of the need for ever-increasing returns uh, on investment. The fact that the book is referred to as a new history of global capitalism, again, is telling. And what it, it points out that is that cotton and the changes that cotton wrought around the world, the empire of cotton, really were the blueprint for everything else. And whilst it wasn't possible in the in European Industrial Revolutions to re-import slavery from back across the Atlantic to Europe, Certainly, the um, mechanised and uh, alienated um, processes of modern capitalism, where workers were on production lines, lived highly regimented work lives, and also, in many cases, highly regimented uh, personal lives, took their cue from modern slavery, took their cue from the practices of modern slavery, applied to um, non-slave-owning societies in ways which were tolerable or which uh, were acceptable. Um, obviously, you couldn't buy and sell your uh, European waged labour, but you could certainly control it with as much coercion as possible. So, Sven Beckett's um, Empire of Cotton, uh, retailing at the bargain price of twelve ninety nine, is available in all good bookshops. Do please make sure that if you're going to go and buy it, that you buy it from your local uh, bookshop. Um, try to support these guys because we'll be heartbroken when they're gone.
And just a bit about Sven Becker himself, he's the Laird Professor of American History at Harvard University, and his previous books include The Moneyed Metropolis, New York, and The Consolidation of the American Bourgeoisie. Um, this book won the Bancroft Prize, uh, the Philip Taft Prize, and the best book in labour history, and was the final for the Pulitzer Prize. So it comes well recommended. Um, give it a look, you won't regret it. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.